people can make themselves slow down and they can try to think logically so there's obvious advice that you can get individuals. But by and large, it's going to be very difficult for people to change the way they think because so much of thinking is intuitive and there's so little that we can do to improve intuitions. Organizations are procedures and organizations in you know, the terms of my earlier book, Thinking Fast and Slow, organizations think slowly. And so um, by the very nature of having to deliberate on, on in making decisions in the organizational context. So there is, there is room for action, for intervention with organization that doesn't exist with individuals. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 110. And this episode is with Daniel Kahneman, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Public Policy at Princeton University. So Danny is extraordinarily well known for having won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002 for joint work that he did with Amos Tversky. And if you've been listening to this podcast for at least the past month or so, you'll be familiar with his work because uh, it was discussed with Steven Pinker on episode 100. I'm already forgetting the other episode numbers, but there was Paul Bloom, uh, Kevin Dorst, and you might also know his work from the wonderful book he wrote, Thinking Fast and Slow, or his recent book with Olivier Siboni and Cass Sunstein, Noise, in which they, in part at least, touch on this work with Amos, but he and Amos investigated or really revealed this extensive list of biases and heuristics that humans operate with and in which we, I guess, deviate thereby from the rationality that was assumed by the economic models and economic theory at the time. And this work has been I mean, it's really exploded in economics and psychology since then. And if you if you go to Wikipedia, you'll discover this huge list of cognitive biases that have been unearthed by this program. So in addition to the uh, Nobel Prize, Danny also won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was given to him or awarded to him by Barack Obama. So this episode... Danny and I talk mainly about content from this new book, Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. And noise, which I mean means different things in different contexts, in this context, it concerns the really astonishingly prevalent and damaging variability inherent in human judgment. So not just within one judge or human making a judgment, but in many different judges. So just a quick example, within the judicial system, um, judges will give drastically different sentences to, for the same crime, this sort of thing. Or it's quite possible that a single individual, uh, say I was a sommelier, I might blind tested give the same wine, uh, very different scores. If I, maybe I stubbed my toe that morning, anything like this. So this book is all about noise, how it relates to bias, and what can be done about it. And that's what Danny and I talk about for the most part. We start with a really fascinating story from his childhood in Nazi-occupied France. Then we talk about the difference between noise and bias, uh, examples from the judicial and medical system. We get to broader ideas about psychology and then ways in which Less individuals, but more groups of people can limit noise, so the unwanted variability in their judgments. And then we finish with a tale from Danny's time in the Israeli military and what he learned constructing an interviewing program for the military. And I mean, what he learned about human psychology from doing this. Uh, one thing I should mention is that at the timestamp marked psychology and the descriptive. In the episode, I had a pretty crucial misspeak in which I said that I thought psychological lab work 
was concerned primarily with the prescriptive, with uh, telling people how or giving people advice on how they should act. And I absolutely meant to say the descriptive. So it, psychological lab work is more concerned with explaining or describing how people act in certain situations. And this resulted in uh, some confusion in our conversation. But noise is li linked in the description. You should definitely read it. And you should also read Thinking Fast and Slow. It's phenomenal. It's one of the greatest books I've read in a long time. I'm still reading noise, but it is also quite terrific. So I have a Discord that you can find through robinsonerhart.com. It's relatively new in which you can uh, leave thoughts maybe about guests you'd like to see or just other ideas. Uh, there's a community of, of geeselings there chatting away. And reviews, comments, likes, subscribes, all of these things are so wonderful and helpful. So without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Danny. What I'd like to start with is a story from your life that I came across in the materials accompanying your being awarded the Nobel Prize. And that's not just because it's interesting, but because I think it's a powerful way of introducing the concept of noise, even if that wasn't how you thought about this story uh, when you wrote it. But the story I have in mind involves your walking home as a little boy in Nazi-occupied France and running into an officer. Do you think uh, you could recount this story for us? I was about seven years old. It was 1941. Uh, uh, the Germans had passed the rule that there was a seven o'clock curfew for Jews and that we had to wear a yellow star and <clears throat> on our clothes. And I was playing with a friend and I forgot the time. I was visiting a friend. And I forgot the time and discovered that it was past seven. So I turned my sweater upside in, inside out. And close to my home, uh, and it's a place I've revisited recently. So just because I had such a powerful visual image of it, um, I was walking the street was deserted and the only person walking toward me was uh, German soldier in a black uniform, which indicated that he was, you know, an SS, the worst of the worst. Uh, and so I continued walking and he continued walking. And when we came close, he beckoned me and called me to him. And, and then he picked me up. And I remember being quite afraid that he would see inside my sweater. Uh, and see who I was. And then he put me down and he opened a wallet and, and showed me a picture. And the picture, of course, was of a little boy. And then he gave me a few coins. And, and we walked our separate ways. Uh, and, you know, for me, I, I told that story that for some reason, uh, catches people's attention, but I, I told that story because at the time, I think, it was an indication of how complicated human beings are, that no one is all good or all evil, that here with this man would easily have killed me, and, but he was in some ways tender-hearted and he had a son. So. Mm -hmm. The reason that that immediately made me think of noise is not only because I was reading uh, your book, Noise, with Olivier Siboney and Cass Sunstein, but I imagine that after this episode and ever since then, you've probably been thinking about two things among, among many others. And one is, what if this officer had been having a bad day? or if he'd stubbed his toe two minutes earlier, or been told out, been told to look out for people turning their sweaters inside out. And two, uh, what if this had been a different officer walking down the block? And these, these questions, of course, point to noise, uh, which is variability 
in judgments of the same problem. And one that in your case was lucky, though noise is typically uh, considered a bad thing. Well, it's not, it's not strictly speaking noise. This is, this, these are counterfactuals and you can always invoke counterfactuals. In fact, I never <clears throat> had counterfactual thoughts about this incident. No, there was, no, I mean, it, he never knew I was a Jew, obviously. So, uh, and <clears throat> what was interesting was what the incident revealed about him. Uh, but the, yeah, the counterfactuals, uh, I've thought a lot about counterfactuals and I've written about counterfactuals, but uh, I never, the counterfactual to this one never occurred to me. It wouldn't be strictly speaking noise because noise is not in the world. Noise is among judgments and it's judgments that are supposed to be the same. And, uh, of course, in, when you are in the counterfactual world, you can imagine people in similar conditions making a different judgment, but it's a pretty far-fetched example of noise. Yeah, yeah, that that's certainly the case. But, well, then maybe before we move on, we should say just what noise is and also distinguish it from bias, which a great deal of your work, I mean, including some of that for which you won the Nobel Prize centers around. And the the book you wrote begins with an analogy to target shooting uh, that I found particularly illustrative, but I don't know how you like to explain noise to an audience who, who is unfamiliar with the topic. Well, it's interesting that uh, that target display has been, uh, you know, we've used it for several years and the first version of it appeared in the 17th century. So it's a classic way of demonstrating it. So you have <clears throat> several people shooting at a target and, and they can either, all five of them can be very close to the, to the bullseye and then they're accurate, or they can still be clustered, but far from the bullseye and that's a bias, or they can be scattered around the bullseye and that's pure noise. The scatter is the noise or they can be both scattered and biased. Uh, as it happens, I had a conversation this morning with Cass Sunstein in which I said, I have completely given up on this particular way of, of explaining uh, noise. And, and we were having a debate because both of us agreed that this, this target idea has a certain charm, the target display. You found it interesting. Everybody does. But here is the way I would describe it now, and which Cass thought is a bit merciless and a bit harsh. So imagine uh, we're talking about repeated measurement of the length of a line. And we know the exact length of the line. And I show you two distributions of measurements. And one of these distributions is scattered but unbiased it's scattered around the the bulls the the truth the true value and the other one is very peaked that is all the measurements agree but it's biased they're off the target and clearly those are two ways for a measurement to be inaccurate measure a set of measurements can be inaccurate if its average is of the truth, of the true value, or if it's scattered around the true value. And the scatter is noise. The off the distance between the truth and the average of the measurements, that's a bias. And those are two forms that error can take. And then you can add the two, that is, you can have scatter around the, around the bias value is where the mean is not identical to the true value. And that is worse. In fact, according to the standard formula for, for measurement error, which goes back to, to Gauss, uh, according to the standard formula, 
the overall measure of error is simply the square of the bias plus the square of the noise. And that's what I would display today. I would, I would de-emphasize the targets because they don't show that at all clearly. Um, whereas the display, the display of favor now, I hope, uh, shows it more clearly. Well, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that debate with Cass. So the repeated measurements of the lines versus the target, because the main distinction I see between them is that the former takes place in a one-dimensional field and the second uh, a two-dimensional field. And you think it just makes clearer, using the one-dimensional field, the distinction between bias and noise? Yes. I mean, clearly, because when we deal with measurements, uh, it's a one-dimensional affair. I mean, it's the, there is the truth along one dimension and the, the measurements on the same dimension. And the two-dimensional display just makes it very difficult to get back to the notion of error. Uh, and yet, for some reason that I don't understand, <laughs> the, the target display has a charm that the measurement display does not, and I'm going to have to try to figure it out. But I'll use the measurement display in a talk I give next week. Hmm. Well, there are a few central themes that I've taken from the book that I'd like to talk about. And I think it's worth enumerating them right now in case you object to how I see them. And the first is that noise. So this variability in judgment isn't simply human in origin, though it does center around judgment, but that it arises in part because of the complexity and uncertainty of the world in which we live. And then the second is that noise is far, far more pervasive than anyone, anybody realizes, and that it consequently has pretty tremendous pejorative effects and costs throughout our lives. And the third, which is particularly interesting uh, because it's prescriptive rather than descriptive, which you don't often see in a psychology text, is that while noise might not be eliminable, it can definitely have been muffled, and there are ways to do this. Is that, do you think, a fair summary of some of your uh, key points? The second and the third, I agree with. Restate the first because I don't quite agree with it. Okay, good. Yeah, the first, my first point was that noise, even though it stems from, or, well, it, it centers around human judgment. It is in large ways produced by the complexity of the world? No. I mean, I wouldn't agree with that. But where we talk about the complexity of the world, and it's in a chapter that's called, I think, Objective Ignorance is the title of that chapter. And that is that the ability to predict the world, to predict events, uh, is limited by, by unavoidable unpredictability and the unpredictable, but that is actually quite distinct from noise. It's a separate difficulty in achieving accurate judgment. So, uh, but it's not an error because that it is in the world. Uh, when you come to error, there are just two types of errors. There is noise and there is bias and that's exhaustive. There isn't more. Hmm. So, well, but your two other points, uh, I agree with. Sure. Well, maybe we could talk about some examples to better flesh out how noise reflects itself in human judgment. I mean, one of the examples that you go back to in the book many times is the judiciary and how judges will evaluate uh, cases quite differently from one another, and they will evaluate similar cases very differently. Uh, but then, I mean, there are also plenty of very topical examples right now. I mean, you, you wrote this book during the pandemic, so the pandemic wasn't a huge focus in terms of examples, but I'm sure you have plenty from the COVID response as well. Of course. Uh, but the best example, as you say, is noise in sentence. Because <clears throat> that really offends our sense of justice and the way that justice should operate. But experiments have shown 
really a shocking amount of noise. And this is worth illustrating because it's hard to believe. Uh, so in a study that was done with 208 federal judges, that study was done many years ago, they were shown vignettes of crimes with de some details about the defendant and some details about the crime. And they had to set a sentence. And what you looked at, and everybody got the same 16 problems and said 16 sentences. And you looked at the variability for within a sentence across people. And to give you a sense of the variability, in cases for which, in a case for which the average sentence was seven years, you would take two judges at random and the difference between them, the average, the expected difference between them would be almost four years. So this is the lottery that the defendant faces and, you know, which judge will be assigned. And, and then that example can be used to separate judges, uh, to separate noises, noise into uh, identifiable components, the three components of noise if you want me to go into this. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about occasion noise well, level. Yeah. yeah, so the first and most, there are two kinds of noise that people really are quite familiar and understand and understand quite easily. And one is that some judges are more severe than others and others are more lenient. So that on average, uh, the sentences of some judges are higher, more punitive than that of others. This is, what this is actually is individual differences in bias. That is, severity and leniency are both forms of bias and, and people differ in, in their bias. And that's one source of noise. It turn, that's the first one that people think about, whether judge severe or, or lenient. Actually, it's not the biggest one. And then there are two others. One is an, one that people can readily um, come up with, and you already alluded to that, is uh, the within subject variation, the within judge variation. The same judge looking at the same case will not make the same judgment. There is variability depending on mood or depending on a variety of uh, contextual aspects of the situation that, that affect the judge at a particular moment. So that the lottery that the defendant faces is a dual lottery. Uh, which judge will I be assigned to? And what mood or what state will that judge be in? Because that state is also the source of noise. The most interesting part of noise, the most important and the most obscure because it's very hard to think about, is that judges differ in systematic and consistent ways in their tastes. That is, some judges are most influenced by whether the crime of violent one or not. Others are less influenced by that than by whether the victim was helpless or not, was an old person someone who could defend. There, and, you know, there is a very, very large number of possible, there's an infinity of possibilities for patterns of preferences. So, you know, a judge might be, might have a preference for, and might be lenient to people who look, remind him of his daughter. And that would be consistent for that judge, but different from all other judges. This source of noise, I would call it consistent idiosyncrasy. That is, it's a variability across people, but it's consistent within the individual. That is, it turns out, the largest component of noise. And people have, as it were, a, a judgment personality. They have, which is very complex, they have separate and distinguishable attitudes to different crimes or different defendants. Um, and 
that I think is the most interesting form of noise as well as uh, as well as the largest. But we came to it very slowly. I mean, we, like everybody else we talked to, first thought of what we call level noise, which is severity, leniency, and occasional noise. And only later did we see that actually this interaction or pattern noise or uh, the variability in tastes is the most interesting and the largest. Well, this is this pattern noise, though, is sort of what I was alluding to when I brought up the story of the SS officer, because there's sort of a, a parallel between the, the judge who is more lenient to um, defendants who resemble his daughter and the SS officer who is more uh, lenient or perhaps neglectful of, of people who resemble his child. Well, I mean, you could you could easily imagine that an SS soldier who had a daughter instead of a son would not have picked me up. I mean, that's uh, that is very likely to occur. That's the the circum. All other things being equal, they could be equally willing to shoot Jews, but uh, if one of them had a son and one of them had a daughter, the probability of their being moved by a senior trial could be quite different. That would be pattern noise. Mm -hmm. Now, one question I have here, or, or maybe it points to a distinction that should be made, but when we're talking about these ju judges who differ in systematic and consistent ways regarding their tastes, uh, whether they're more interested in crime or helplessness, etc., why do we refer to this as noise rather than bias? Or are these just places where bias and noise coincide? No. Uh, what there are, there, all these tastes are biases, like overall severity is a bias. So if, you know, somebody is predisposed to be lenient to people who resemble his daughter, that's a bias. What creates noise is that different people are biased in different ways. So it's individual differences. And in general, you should think of bias at the error that people share and of noise at the error that is not shared across measurements. And then it becomes clear what the relationship is. I see. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. And this is a, a point that's brought up many times in the book. But so continuing with this example of the Jew judiciary, um, noise is endemic to the judicial system or the legislative system. Why is it that it is allowed to exist there and it isn't rooted out when it's clearly so problematic and stands in the way of proper justice? Uh, because it can't be rooted out easily, but it can be denied. And, uh, and it is denied rather than, it's not that people, you know, that it's recognized truth that there is noise. It's a denied truth that there is noise in the judiciary. They don't want to hear about it. And when I talk to judges about noise, I'm told to be very gentle and very careful, and preferably to use examples from medicine, because the existence of noise and justice violates the concept of justice. And the whole idea of how a judge functions, the ideal, view which is held within that profession and everything that surrounds it is that the judge is, as it were, a measuring instrument for measuring justice, measuring a just punishment. And you don't want to question that measurement because that measurement plays an essential role. And if you say that measurement is noisy, you are questioning the whole system. And there isn't, in fact, an easy solution. You can maybe remediate or reduce noise a bit. You certainly cannot eliminate it altogether, but you can deny it altogether. And that's the preferred solution. Hmm. But my understanding with regard to the acceptance, I guess, of noise, it's not just that people don't want to accept it. It's that it's also very hard 
to spot. That's right. I mean, and, and there is an there is an interesting aspect to this. Is, when we did a systematic study of the amount of noise, it's not only in the judiciary; it's everywhere we looked at. So, and our conclusion was: well, first of all, you've got to defend or discriminate between judgment and perception or between judgment and computation in particular. So in computation, there is a simple answer and when people, there's a true answer. And when people compute, they typically generate that answer. When you assume that judgment has to be involved, if you think about it, you use the word judgment when we expect some noise. We don't use the word judgment unless some disagreement between reasonable people is sort of tolerated. So noise is the con some noise, the acceptance of some noise is built into the very concept of using judgment. You don't expect people to make precisely identical judgment. What is shocking to people is the amount of noise. It's not its existence in principle. They understand that they must exist. There is just a lot more, and we measured that in one case, and it was there was five times as much noise as people expected. And it's the difference between the average difference between two randomly selected underwriters in an insurance company looking at the same case. The actual difference was five times larger than what the executives in that company expected. So it's, it's that exact. It's that underestimate, systematically, systematic underestimate of noise that, that actually motivated the book. People really can't get their head around it. And people are aware of noise in medicine, although they're always shocked when they are told how much noise there is. But in in the judiciary, people are vaguely aware of it, but they don't want to talk about it. And in most other places that we looked, we found more in much more noise than people expected. And so we concluded uh, our observations with wherever there is judgment, there is noise, and there is more of it than you think. And that's that seems to be a general truth. Where in the medical system was noise most troubling? Well, I mean, you find it, you know, you find noise in diagnosis and you find noise in treatment. So in both, uh, it's undesirable. But, you know, physicians really vary a lot in their, uh, in their diagnosis of the same case. And, and they vary in how they treat the same case. And there is noise within the physicians. So physicians behave differently in the morning when they're wide awake and in the afternoon when they're tired. So they are more likely to prescribe antibiotics or, or to make sort of default errors uh, in the afternoon when they're tired than in the morning. That's noise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was amazing. I guess returning to the judiciary for a moment, all of the various things that can contribute to noise in judges' sentencing. So just as with the uh, the physicians, I think they were more likely maybe to be lenient in the morning or lenient if they were not hungry, uh, lenient if it was the defendant's birthdays. And it's just astonishing that all of these factors can can so detrimentally affect somebody's life uh, when you're talking about whether they get sentenced for three years or 30 years or something like that, depending on a judge's temperament in the moment. I think, I think within a judge, it wouldn't be three to 30. It would be yeah, more restrictive yeah. than that. Yeah. But, but there would be enough variation within a judge to be concerned with. And, and what has been studied <clears throat> is the effect of irrelevant factors. So, weather has an effect on the length of sentences, even when the courtroom is air-conditioned. Uh, the Whether or not the judge's football team has won or not has some effect on the severity of sentences on Monday. It's that sort of thing. Uh, there, there are a lot of 
completely irrelevant influences that affect judges. And that's true for judges, it's true for everything else, undoubtedly, every other judgment. In reading thinking, thinking Fast and Slow and then Noise, since I'm not a psychologist, I don't have a tremendous exposure to the literature, but something that always amazes me or that amazes me in this book is the tremendous sort of ingenuity of the psychologists and how fun the the various experimental designs are to test these sorts of things. And one of the things, one of the episodes I think I was reading about this morning that sticks out to me is that to test the variability of a certain judge in this case a judge of like wines you might have you might not tell them that you're going to have them retest the same wine many months later or it's going to be blindfolded and you can test the uh within person variability or noise just by these very neat experimental designs yes i mean uh this is not this is not you know this is pretty obvious but uh, psychologists are quite devious uh, in their design of experiments. Less so now than they were a while ago because the the need to treat human subjects with respect is interfering with the ingenuity of our experiments. You cannot deceive people, for example. You're not allowed to deceive people. Many of the classic experiments use deception. Yeah, I was... I have only been part of one psychology, actually two, uh, two when I was in undergrad, but when I was much more naive about how these sorts of things worked. And the first one I still remember quite well. I, I mean, I didn't have any idea what was going to happen going in, but I was sat down with another participant and I was asked to pick a topic out of a hat and then the other participant was given a list of questions to ask me based on whatever the topic I pulled out of the hat was. And the topic I pulled out of the hat was affirmative action. And the other participant just happened to be black. And afterward, I was told, and I hadn't realized this during the discussion, uh, my uh, the other participant was not, in fact, a participant, but one of the people conducting the study. So it was all just engineered deceptively. But, of course, I had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's fairly typical. And there would be no way of running that experiment. And, you know, you couldn't find out what the truth is in that situation without deceiving, without not revealing the whole truth. Uh, to the individual that would destroy the effect. <clears throat> and one last thing before we move on to the prescriptive dimension of the book is why relative to noise, I mean, relative to bias specifically, is noise so difficult for us to spot? Well, and the... There is one very deep reason that noise seems to be so alien. <clears throat> and, and the deep reason is that each of us have the sense of seeing the world as it is, because that's the way it is. And, and that sense, which the late psychologist Lee Ross at Stanford uh, called naive realism, uh, that makes you prone to expect that other people see the world as you do. And what is really stunning to people is the realization of how much they differ from others more than they would expect to. And, you know, we encounter that occasionally uh, when we come out of a film. But, by the way, in that situation, coming out of a film, which somebody really hated and the other really loved, is that typically, even within the first exchange, the difference would be muted. Because typically, when the first person says, I loved it, then the one who hated it is going to be more uh, lenient and careful in response than he or she would have been if the first response had been, 
I hate. So uh, there is a reduction of noise as part of social intercourse, social interaction. I'd like to turn now to what I've been referring to as the prescriptive dimension of noise. And maybe before we talk about like the, the noise audit, noise hy- hygiene, I'm curious, was it your collaboration with your co-authors that drew in this normative component to the work? Because like I've said, psychology, I mean, the psychologists I've spoken to, the lab work tends to be more prescriptive than it is telling people how they ought to behave. So what was it that brought this element into the book? Uh, Or do you disagree with my characterization? Yes, I mean, I don't understand it. Uh, Oh, okay. the, The lab work is entirely descriptive. Uh, the, so what is it that you're referring to there? So I, I guess I think of when philosophers and psychologists are both dealing with how people act, psychologists are more concerned with describing how people act or behave or think. So in your work with Tversky, for example, I mean, you're pointing out the biases people have, the limitations that they have, and then maybe the philosophers are more interested in determining how people ought to act and giving it a more normative spin. Uh, But really, there is an important, it's a threefold distinction. You have the normative, how people ought to act. You have the descriptive, how people do act. And you have the prescriptive, which is giving people advice, accepting their limitation. It's not how they ought to behave, which is an abstract notion, but it's advice, feasible advice about what they could do. So we distinguish quite sharply the prescriptive from both the normative on the one side and the descriptive on the other. And what we have, all psychological advice, uh, to people is prescriptive. We psychologists leave, mostly leave to philosophers the normative question. Um, That's, uh, I hadn't actually ever encountered this distinction between normative and prescriptive, but it's quite apt. So is prescriptive, the, prescri- the prescriptive component then you think is part of academic psychology. It's not just part of this book in particular. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are many, uh, there are many suggestions about how people could overcome errors of judgment. Certainly it's not the only one. Okay. And, Moving on then, in the book, you and your co-authors write that whether you make a decision only once or a hundred times, your goal should be to make it in a way that reduces both bias and noise and practices that reduce error should be just as effective in your one-of-a-kind decisions as in your repeated ones. And there's a lot here in this just brief quote and a lot that isn't. So, I mean, here you don't say how to reduce bias and noise. So maybe this is more of a meta question, but is the implication that regardless of the sort of choice you're making, like whether it's recurrent or not, the strategy for noise and bias reduction is to have a systematic way of making judgments. Um, The key here being that the system is geared to be impartial and then I suppose a second question here before we get into the, into the specifics is whether eliminating bias or noise is more important than the other. And I know that's a pretty big question. Well, uh, with respect to the unique decision versus repeated decision, uh, Olivier Siboni invented the phrase that I really like a lot which is that a unique event is really a repeated event that happens only once. So there is no, you know, qualitative 
significant difference between the, the unique and the repeated. So any procedure that you have to reduce error in repeated judgment is, if feasible in the individual case, applicable to the individual unique decision. So that's that. That's how the logic goes. It's not, of course, uh, we don't go into the philosophy of unique versus repeated. We just say that the prescriptive advice that we can develop and test to some extent in the repeated case, uh, that prescriptive advice, there is, the logic says it should be applicable to uniqueness. Then you asked me about noise and bias. And so clearly, uh, they're quite different in the ways uh, that you can deal with them. In the first place, there is a recipe for eliminating noise completely, which really does not exist for bias. And the recipe for eliminating noise is obtain multiple independent judgments of the same object. When you average multiple judgments, you can drive the noise to zero. However, averaging multiple judgments does not touch bias. What is the so-called wisdom of the crowd means averaging many judgments. It eliminates bias and it doesn't touch noise. So that's one very important difference. That there is a way of reducing noise in principle. And then to reduce bias, you want to deal with the specific problem that you have and ask, how could I go after making a judgment or a decision in that specific problem? How could I do that in a way that reduces bias as much as possible? So you've got to figure out what the bias will be, and then try to reduce it. In. in dealing with noise, there's a different way of looking at it, which we call decision hygiene. And that's instead of a vaccine or a medication, which are specific to a disease, hygiene is completely unspecific. When you wash your hands, you don't know what germ you're killing, and you will never know. I mean, that's, that's just part of what hygiene is. So we came up with that notion of decision hygiene. And, of, and that's basically a set of procedures of judgment and decision making that we think generally reduce error. And in particular, they, we believe they reduce noise. Mm -hmm. And now, there's this old adage in the business world that what doesn't get measured doesn't get managed. And seeing as noise has received such little attention, presumably people, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I think there's five times more noise than people actually imagine there is. So they don't know how much there is or how to spot it. And if we want to reduce it, do we need to know where it is? Are there places people should look for noise or specially effective ways of locating it? Or just, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's entirely, you know, it's absolutely essential to recognize the existence of noise before you, before you do anything about it. And so we recommend noise audits as a way of measuring how much noise there is in the judgments that an organization produces. All this talk is, all this prescriptive advice is addressed to organizations, not so much to individuals. So an organization faces a problem of noise. If the different underwriters of an insurance company will come up with different numbers, this is costly to the organization. So the organization will want to reduce noise. And of course, it will also want to reduce bias. It will want the pricing either to be too high or too low. Decision hygiene are steps that could be suggested or imposed on the functionaries who perform a particular task, like underwriters or judges. Uh, and 
it's a procedure that is intended to uh, promote or facilitate accurate judgment and to reduce error. And there are, you know, there are certain things we know, certain steps we know, that on average reduce error to some extent. Why? I'm just curious, is the noise audit and the prescriptions in the book, well, why are they more geared toward organizations than individuals? Is it, is it because the book is, you think the book is more geared toward uh, fixing noise in organizations or it's just harder to make prescriptions for individuals? I think, I think making prescriptions for individuals is to a significant extent a waste of time. I mean, that's, that, that was a position I took in thinking fast and slow, which, which was done, you know, many years earlier, 10 years earlier. Um, and, you know, I don't think that people can make themselves slow down and they can try to think logically. So there's obvious advice that you can give individuals. But by and large, it's going to be very difficult for people to change the way they think because so much of thinking is intuitive and there's so little that we can do to improve intuitions. Organizations are procedures and organizations in, you know, the terms of my earlier book, Thinking Fast and Slow, organizations think slowly. And so um, by the very nature of having to deliberate on, on in making decisions, in the organizational context. So there is, there is room for action, for intervention with organization that doesn't exist with individuals. Hmm. Yeah, I actually thought though that your bias observation checklist uh, for reducing bias in decision-making that's contained in, I think it's Appendix C in Noise is Great, though, not just for decision observers, quote unquote, decision observers in an organization, but that it could also be employed by individuals making their own major decisions, so long as they kind of reword the questions accordingly. Naturally, I mean, you said people think uh, quite intuitively. I think it's a big ask for people to use uh, the questionnaire like this for everyday decisions, but it could be useful if somebody really wants to make a concerted effort to have a reasonable, unbiased major decision. Yeah, I think, you know, I think Benjamin Franklin already had something similar. Okay. That's when you face a major decision, you make a list of the pluses and of the minuses, and, uh, and then you look and try to find the balance. So in one way or another, uh, that's the kind of advice that can be given to individuals for special occasions. It primarily slow down, get advice, sleep over it, uh, and try to make a list. <laughs> so engage system two uh, rather than... Basically engage system two, yes. Mm -hmm. But of course, his checklist would have uh, lacked the specific output that came from uh, your work with... Uh, Tversky, but whether that's an important, you know, whether that's important or not, I don't know. I mean, it's not notice that what he's focused on is not focused on how could I make a mistake, which would be come more naturally from our work on biases, but his focus is on what are the important considerations in this problem? And that's, that's a perfectly fine approach to take. It's also sometimes, some, sometimes you can catch yourself saying, well, I'm prone to be biased in this particular direction because of a very recent experience that I had. So I know that that very recent experience will have affected me more than it should. And so I resist. So there are ways in which people can resist biases. Otherwise, Franklin's advice is pretty good. It would be very worthwhile to go through a few of the specific decision, hy decision hygiene techniques in your book and, and some examples. So some are 
fairly obvious, I think, like that selecting better judges, I mean, should produce better outcomes. Uh, but maybe we can turn to some of the, the subtler ideas. Like, okay, this, this one I think is very good. And uh, in quotes, sequencing information to limit the formation of premature intuitions. Maybe we could talk about the, the fingerprints and forensic analysis. I think the starting point for a lot of this, and you know, starting point for me in the history of my life was constructing an interview. And, and there are two types of hiring interviews of interview personnel. And unstructured is when, you know, you try to get the measure of the person by talking to them and structured and the standard structure interview, say, in the context of hiring, would uh, there would first be a search for the major dimensions that are important to the job. And secondly, uh, you would develop a procedure for assessing each of these dimensions separately and independently of the others. And so in an interview, in a structured interview, you would ask a set of questions that not necessarily, you know, this is conversational. It's not necessarily filling a questionnaire, but you're looking for, say, factual aspects. You know, you're looking for facts in the individual's life that would indicate how sociable that individual is or how punctual. Uh, and that's, those are the questions. It turns out, and that's essential, that the structured interview is better, achieves higher validity than the unstructured interview. And the reason for that is that in the unstructured interview, intuitions develop very quickly, and people spend most of the time, most of the interview time, confirming their intuitions, which are a waste of time. In the structured interview, they're collecting information throughout, and and that's the key aspect in my mind. Uh, they're collecting information and delaying it, the for, the formation of a global intuition until all the information is in. So it's breaking out the problem and delaying intuition. Those are the major principles, and it's not that they guarantee high validity. They don't because achieving validity in, in human affairs, high validity is quite difficult, but moderate validity, given the unpredictability of the world and the difficulty of assessing things, it takes a structured process, and a structured process is an improvement. And it's a kind of discipline that individuals could take on, but it's much more natural for organization to to impose a structured process. Hmm. Right. And uh, though maybe this doesn't directly relate to the formation of intuitions, but another benefit of the structured interview is that you treat different cases, so different interviewees identically, and you don't just immediately get derailed, I guess, by an intuition. That I think is a, is a beautiful point. And the, People who do interviewing, un unstructured interviewing, are very frequently impressed with themselves by the subtlety of their judgments. And, you know, for each individual, they focus on one trait rather than another. So what is distinctive about an individual calls for a lot of attention. In, in a structured process, as you said, all individuals will be treated alike in the sense that the different attributes are going to be given equal weight for all individuals. So if you have somebody, you know, who is highly sociable, in the unstructured process, the fact that a person is, is, un, is exceptional on one dimension is going to attract a lot of attention and determine a lot of the final impression in the structured process, this is, this is control. And 
what we say, it's a harsh judgment, but I think it's fair, is that when people think they're being subtle, they're just being noisy. That is, uh, treating people differently and following your subtle intuitions is a recipe for generating noise without improving so, validity. Right. So it just adds unwanted variability in judgments. Yeah. And when you refer to the importance of interviews in your own life, are you expressly talking about your time in the Israeli military? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, I, that was an important part of my biography, more important than the incident with the SS soldier, is that at, at the age of 21, I was assigned the job of setting up an interviewing system for the Israeli army. And, you know, this was early in the life of Israel in 1955. Uh, so everybody was improvising all over the place and it was not so utterly unusual for a 21 year old to be given that task. But what I developed for the Israeli army was a structured interview. It turned out a very prototypical structured interview was of the kind that is generally used. I didn't know about it, so I came upon it largely. I had read one important book and uh, didn't have that suggestion, but it had the suggestion of looking at things objectively and of controlling intuition and of critiquing intuition. So that was my starting point. And I developed an interview that turned out to be quite successful and it was used. I think it is in some, with some variation, it is still being used in the Israeli well, this, I guess, is a bit of a digression from noise, but one of the episodes, I think it's in Thinking Fast and Slow, that I appreciated most came from your time with the Israeli Air Force, I think, and it had to do with pilots and regression to the mean. And maybe you could share that that episode. Well, uh, yes, so I was... Giving a short instruction course to instructors in the pilot, the Air Force pilot training course. Uh, and so the, these were all experienced instructors. And I told them about the value of rewards in contrast to punishments in promoting human learning. And the examples I gave were from animals, mostly, because that's been studied extensively, the, the costs of punishment and the advantages of reward. And when I completed that story, somebody, uh, uh, somebody came up with the comment that this might be true, but it's, you know, I'd spoken of pigeons, so he said it's, it's for the birds, basically. It's not true for pilots because I have had the experience, he said, of when a, uh, a cadet executes a maneuver and does very poorly, I've had the experience of screaming in their headphone, which is a sort of punishment that, that is uh, used uh, in that place. And on occasion, I praise somebody because they did beautifully in one of the maneuvers. And in general, he said, when I praise them, the next time they do worse, when I punish them, the next time they do better. So don't tell me that rewards work and punishments don't. Uh, that was, a, and I understood because I was teaching statistics, so it was a fairly natural association that what was happening had nothing to do with the, with the rewards of the punishment. It was a statistical fact that we're all fully aware of, uh, of regression to the mean. That is, when do you praise? You praise when somebody is doing very well. What do you expect when somebody is doing very well the next time they try the same thing? You expect them to do less well. 
when you punish, when people do very badly, what do you expect when they do very badly? You expect that the next time they'll do less badly. So that's entirely statistics. And it turns out, that, uh, and it was easy to demonstrate. No, I had them to demonstrate that. I had them sh try to throw coins at a target without looking and to do it twice, to throw two coins at the target without looking. And so they had no information when they uh, shot their second, uh, tossed their second coin that uh, they didn't know how well they had done the first time. But those who did very well the first time did less well the second time. Those who did poorly the first time did less poorly the second time. That's regression to the mean. And clearly, it's not causal. It's a whole line of explanation which doesn't go through causes, but it goes through statistics. And it's a long story. Well, Danny, this has been a real, a really great joy and a treat to to have you on the show so thank you so much for joining me okay my pleasure hold on geeselings before you go please uh like subscribe follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not <laughs> joining me every morning as i eat my pint of ice cream on twitch at robinson Earhart on robinson eats Please do so.